This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. We are living through unprecedented times in an increasingly complex global environment. The balance of power across the world is changing, creating new threats to an already interdependent and global supply chain. As a result, the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA, must focus on agile, innovative solutions that increase readiness and lethality for our warfighters. What are the strategic priorities for the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA? How is DLA modernizing acquisition supply chain management? And what is DLA doing to expand industry engagement and foster innovation while maximizing value? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Vice Admiral Michelle Skubik, Director of the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA. Admiral, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So would you spend some time, Admiral, telling us about the mission of the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA? Why is it so important to the success of the U.S. Department of Defense now more than ever? So where to start? First of all, we are a uh, a very sizable agency that serves every single member in the Department of Defense as well as several other interagency customers and allied and partner nations um, when it's appropriate. And, uh, you know, the, the textbook answer would be we're uh, a large buying, storing, distributing, and disposing machine. Now, obviously, the real true north is serving the warfighter. What are we serving? We're serving their readiness and their lethality, their ability to respond to to crises, contingencies that may arise uh, to support the national defense strategy. We are part of that ecosystem and a critical enabler to that day-to-day mission. Wonderful. So was that important mission, how is DLA organized? And what's this, can you give us a sense of the size of the budget composition of workforce? Sure. So, so organizationally, and by the way, I should say DLA uh, was born of reform, and we are an organization that has to be committed to reform when and where necessary, transformation, modernization, I would say in a nutshell, our work is never done. And we have to view that. You know, every day we have Herculean efforts on behalf of that True North mission. And then on top of that, we've got to be looking to the future and how we get better every day at what we do. And so organizationally, we've even evolved over time. So we're a 61 and change year organization. Uh, So we celebrated our 60th birthday in October of 2021 and spent a year kind of celebrating how DLA's history has evolved over time and how we've improved our support to the warfighters around the globe. And uh, and so when you look back to 1961 when we started, the why of DLA has continued to evolve. Why are we organized how we are? And, uh, and when you look back to World War II, there were so many inefficiencies in how uh, logistics was done for each of the services, each of the components around the globe. You can imagine all of the services had built up their own inventories 
in many cases, of the exact same supplies and requirements that were um, emulated in other services. And so you're managing the storage, you're managing the procurement, and you can imagine some of those had shelf life dates that they had to manage on top of it and all different processes, different accounting systems, et cetera. And so out of that, you can envision lots of inefficiencies, Mm -hmm. lots of duplication in the procurement, even competition for the same exact supplies. And so there was tremendous opportunity and awareness after World War II that we can do this better. And so that's where the Defense Supply Agency, now known as the Defense Logistics Agency, was born in 1961. So when I tell you a little about the organization, it's it's changed over those six decades, as you can well imagine. Uh, so we have six major subordinate commands. Besides my headquarters, which is here uh, in the Fort Belvoir, Virginia area, we have a uh, you know, four buying commands, one storage and distribution command, and then a disposal command, you might say. And so uh, the buying commands are DLA Aviation in Richmond, Virginia, mm-hmm. DLA Land and Maritime in Columbus, Ohio. I served at both of those once each before. Uh, DLA Troop Support in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and then DLA Energy, who's lucky enough to be co-located with me at Fort Belvoir in our headquarters building. Uh, But all of those are procuring supplies and services kind of in, as the names indicate, aviation is focused on uh, aviation firepower, the repair parts for getting those helicopters, fixed wing jets, tankers, et cetera, flying, you know, in top condition for uh, missions required. And then Land and Maritime similarly is focused on the ground weapon systems, readiness requirements, as well as the maritime surface, subsurface, and maritime systems uh, required. And then troop support, just as it sounds, it's focused on those items that are most closely used by troops. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, they wear uniforms, they require food. Uh, They require medical supplies and medical support, cranials, you know, PPE, et cetera. There's just a whole portfolio, but the troop support mission is uh, critical to the readiness of troops day to day. And then DLA Energy, not surprising, that's where the fuel uh, inventory uh, material management uh, exists. And then they have a a growing mission set that is in alignment with the administration's focus on uh, renewable energy, al- alternative fuel solutions. And so um, so that's expanding a, a bit for us uh, right now. And then uh, on the storage and distribution front, we have DLA Distribution, which is headquartered in New Cumberland, Pennsylvania. Uh, and they manage that global distribution network, okay. which is not only inside our continental U.S., mm-hmm. but also in several countries abroad. And then finally, uh, we have our, our disposition services, last but not least, mm-hmm. uh, up in Battle Creek, Michigan. And disposition services, just like it sounds, is when you're done using it, you turn it in. Well, you don't want to just throw out something that might still have useful life or might be useful for scrap or the DOD doesn't need it, but maybe another federal agency, for example. So it's about responsible uh, reuse or disposal. And that includes those components that we sometimes have to demilitarize to make sure uh, those items don't get into the wrong hands. So those are those major subordinate commands. And then we also have three regional commands that are uh, at the pointy end of the spear, so to speak, in so much as there are eyes and ears out facing critical combatant commands, such as Indo-PACOM, U.S. European Command, U.S. Africa Command, U.S. um, 
Special Operations Command, and then U.S. Central Command. And so so those teams, about 2,000 that are across those regional commands, they, again, are delivering our effects in the forward positions uh, inside those countries and those operating areas. And with that such an expansive portfolio and a critical mission, can you tell us a little bit about your duties and responsibilities? What's a week in the life of, of the well, head of the so, DOA? So I think I'm, I'm remiss that I didn't answer oh, the, the budget oh. piece. So um, because even that's a story. I mean, if you pull a thread, <laughs> there are so many places budget, to yes. go in the conversation about DLA, why DLA and, and, and all. But, uh, you know, in 2022, we obligated, so we went on contract mm-hmm. for $48.2 billion worth of supplies and services. And, and at any given time, any given year, we've got about 150 to $200 billion worth of contracts that are active because many of the contracts we award are for multiple years. You know, you get efficiencies through that on our side, on the supplier or vendor side as well. You get reliability, you get planning uh, efficiencies, et cetera, and often better pricing, fixed pricing, which in the case of inflation has served us well in hedging against some of those perturbations in prices. And so so that's about how much we do in contracts. You can say we've got about the same amount in sales, but it, yeah, it's not a precise one-for-one because the— uh, the fuel nozzle I buy today may get delivered in two years. It may or may not be required on that day. Mm-hmm. So part of this is about leaning into the future requirements while also delivering today's requirements. So you can say the sales are roughly in the ballpark of 40 to $50 billion a year. And, uh, and just a couple of other quick facts. Mm-hmm. We have uh, about 10,000 contracts awarded a day and about 100,000 requirements coming in around the globe from our our Department of Defense warfighters. And so massive scale that has to be operating as efficiently and as effectively as we can possibly make it. So so that's kind of just a little bit of the gee whiz numbers, (laughs) but it tells you why. Why do we have to reform? Why do we have to transform? Why do we have to modernize how we do our, our business processes as well as what systems we're using and how are they integrated? And so, okay, so your second question there was... Uh, your duties and responsibilities. What, you know, what do I do? Yes. So um, much like the CEO of any right. massive organization, uh, sure, I set the tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I drive the strategic plan. And then I monitor our progress. But more importantly than that, I think I need to have regular and recurring fortitude to resource what we just talked about. So how do you do today's business supremely well? while resourcing the changes that have to occur to be a whole lot better in the future because the the world's changing. The challenges facing our nation and our Department of Defense are changing. So we, too, have to. And, and that's a bit of a gut check for any organization. How do you invest in being better? And I would say that, you know, that's my job to uh, – to stand up to the the criticism of, hey, your costs are too high. I have to be able to articulate the why, why the costs are higher in some years over others. Uh, We're very judicious in shaping those costs and making sure that every dollar we spend is for the right reason. I was just wondering, as you laid out the important mission, the expansiveness, your duties and responsibilities, I I was wondering... Do you have, like, say, some key challenges, maybe management challenges that you'd like to highlight? What have you done to address those challenges? So, again, it kind of goes back to that 
that reform piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the challenges, uh, you know, the challenges are numerous. We've got to we've got to work on our cybersecurity. We've got to work on our our speed and scale. Uh, you know, over the years, we have automated much of our procurement processes, for example, and that's one of our our superpowers, if you will, in so much as, uh, you know, I mentioned those 10,000 contracts a day, 90-plus uh, percent of those happen through an automated process, uh, really close to the mid-90s, and 90 percent of the 95 percent are actually done in a day. And so how do you do that? Well, many of those are delivery orders against existing long-term contracts. I mentioned some contracts are for years at a time. Uh, So we have to be able to continue that kind of speed and scale. But then also, as I say, modernize the systems, modernize the business processes, work on our auditability because that's a big effort across the Department of Defense. And so the adage, you've got to build the plane while you're flying it, that that is DLA every day. We have massive efforts in in uh, transforming. We have a digital business transformation project, which sounds like it's all about IT, but it's really the marriage of technology and tools and the processes that deliver those outcomes for the true north, which is, of course, supporting the warfighter when and where they need it. And so building the plane while we're flying it, transforming while you do today's business immaculately well. How, how, how do you lead, Admiral, and what are some of the principles you followed? You know, my least favorite topic is me. So, <laughs> but, uh, but I would say, you know, more importantly, through the years, I've, I've seen leaders lead various ways. You know, some are much more authoritarian, such, some are much more inclusive and engaged and inquisitive and humble and uh, vulnerable and, and authentic. And I would say those latter would definitely be uh, those leadership qualities that uh, I would wish to emulate. Um, I try to create a culture where, by my very questions, um, contributions are not only, you know, invited, but they're needed. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's because the ad- ideas are truly coming from from those that are wrestling with the problem the most, uh, as well as the leadership teams, the business process owners that are supporting getting after those problems. It's just a very uh, strong team effort to lead such a massively important agency. What are the key strategic priorities for the Defense Logistics Agency? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. 
Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Vice Admiral Michelle Skubik, Director of the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA. So, Admiral, could you outline for me your strategic vision, which you hinted at basically in the last segment, but I'd like you to delve a little deeper. But more importantly, what are your strategic priorities for DLA? Uh, I was out on a a key OEM engagement uh, with one of our our critical uh, strategic suppliers. Uh, In a a coffee break, he said, so, Admiral, what's what's the magic of DLA? And I took a half-second pause and, and thought, Huh, okay. And I gave him my hip shot answer. So it had not been formed in my mind, but it so it was an authentic answer, um, sincerely given. And that was first and foremost, the people. So yeah, I to a person, because I've served forward with them, I've served in a couple of the major subordinate commands with them, I have just seen to a person that they they feel so strongly about the mission. And when you consider that out of those uh, 25,000 folks, 24,000 are civilian, 46% of them, 46% of the civilians have served in uniform at some point in time, whether four years or 20 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's pretty special. Is, is So they get it. You don't have to tell them why. But all the rest, many of them are civilians that have volunteered to go serve in harm's way in Afghanistan, in Iraq, et cetera. And, uh, and we have expeditionary civilians who are have a bag ready to get up and go, like when the imminent threat of Putin invading Ukraine was uh, obvious. We sent dozens of people, additional teammates with skill sets into uh, Europe to supplement our our team that was already forward. Those 800 folks that are doing various missions in Europe, we sent those people forward. Uh, just we even had somebody who spoke Pol- Polish. We had you know legal advice. We had uh, supply chain and demand chain experts. Point being is people are ready and volunteering to go when and where we need them. And and those who haven't done that know who they're supporting both across in the team as well as the warfighters everywhere. And that is part of that culture, which is so critical. The second one, again, was the mastery of the, mach- mastery of the machine, which is really kind of that that technology and, and uh, human interface piece, whether it's tools in the warehouse or tools uh, to help our automated business processes, our automated procurement, our supply planning, demand planning, and such. And and uh, and we have a lot of work going on in that space that we have to be extremely good at. Uh, and then the third thing that I said was, uh, you know, these are kind of our three weapon systems, if you say, our people, our uh, mastery of the machine, or technology, and then our Defense Working Capital Fund, which is essentially a revolving fund that would would cry a whole hour to talk about. We won't, but it's not subject to the same planning, programming, and budgeting system that the appropriated accounts are. And the reason for that is so we can lean into lead time requirements. Some of the unique items that we get, repair parts for aircraft and, and tanks, et cetera, don't get ordered very often. When they do, it's going to take 
some amount of time, one, two, in some cases, three years to get it procured Mm -hmm. and then manufactured and then delivered. Not everything's like that, but some things are like that. So we need the the flexibility that a working capital fund uh, enables us, and uh, and we need to use those dollars extremely wisely. So if you take that vignette of the magic of DLA, people, mastery of technology, and then our defense working capital fund, and you rewind it to your question on the strategic plan, you'll see in our strategic plan that we have five lines of effort, and then we have three critical capabilities that coincidentally, (laughs) those are people and culture, digital business transformation, and then... uh, and then fiscal stewardship. So, uh, you know, I'd like to say that was because I walked in and sa- said the magic of DLA is people, mastery of the machine, and our DWCF. But it was uh, through a deliberate process that we we put that strategic plan together. So, so I'm grateful that my hip shot answer that day was pretty sound. Yeah. In and so and so those five lines of effort that I just alluded to. Uh, It'll take too much time to go into all of them, but the warfighter always, that's our theme. That is our true north, and that is, of course, supporting the warfighters around the globe uh, day in and day out, 24-7. And we do say the sun never sets on DLA, not just because of where we are, which is in a half of the world's time zones, but also because the warfighter is all over the globe. But uh, And then lo- line of effort two is support to the nation, which speaks to more about those other uh, customers, the whole of government customers, we refer to them. And those are often uh, organizations like FEMA or uh, HHS or the Forest Service who at certain times uh, can and candidly should benefit from the scope, scale, and skills of a DLA and who can use us through the Economy Act or the Stafford Act to capitalize on our processes and our inventory um, management so that they can respond to a nation in crisis. It's hurricanes. It's forest fires. It's a pandemic, which our response in the pandemic and our support to um, DOD and non-DOD organizations has been sizable, as you can well imagine. So that's what that support to the nation piece is. And then trusted mission partner uh, is line of effort three, modernized acquisition and supply chain management is line of effort four. And then the future of work is line of effort five. And and I, I think from the names, you know it would take us an hour to talk yeah, about each one, one of those. <laughs> and actually, you should. But uh. And we may touch on these. Uh, you know, I, I was going to ask you, as you, as you uh, shared your vignette and how it shaped and informed your vision and your priorities, are there any other internal, you know, drivers or external trends that you might want to allude to that have really either – have have made you realize you you guys hit it on the nose to, to in order to get to the true north you were talking about which is supporting the warfighter there's probably several let me let me think of a couple for you i would say uh one is squarely in that uh realm of the mastery of the machine or technology those those critical tools which of course evolve constantly uh but but DLA has transformed our business systems 
over the years. And, uh, you know, whether it's evolutionary or revolutionary, some of that's going on all the time. Uh, in the case of our enterprise business systems and, and really initially our, our ERP, even before the, the enterprise business systems roll out, uh, we're talking about having um, over a thousand systems applications that we were using to get our job done. And, uh, and for example, it was less than a decade ago that we had 1,300 some odd business applications. Now we have about 10% of that. And uh, yeah, yeah, it kind of speaks for itself. Less to manage, less interface uh, challenges, uh, more efficient from a you know cost perspective, but also um, less opportunity for error and problem sets on say the audit arena, et cetera. Uh, you know, but I will tell you, you can't transform or reform or modernize if it's not to get you to the ultimate end state, which is a better support to the warfighter. And of course, that's what we're trying to do every day, uh, and that includes the digital digital business transformation effort. Um, and, and along with that, we had, I guess it was, in fact, <laughs> I shouldn't have to take too long to remember, it was a year ago. So a critical uh, step in modernizing, in shoring up cybersecurity risks, in getting our data, which is, of course, a critical enabler in and of itself to decisions, getting it all into the cloud. And so uh, I was pretty proud of the team. First of all, it was a 20-month plan. We did it uh, months early, I want to say in 16-some-odd months. Our PEO has been amazing on that front. Um, but again, that's being committed to today being very good mm-hmm. and committed to tomorrow being even better in how we do those those mission sets. So that's just an example uh, and a critical enabler, again, on the on the mastery of the machine side of the house. But, but honestly, there's a whole thread there, uh, modernizing our distribution centers. You know, those are the, the workers, uh, if I could go back just for a second. So, you know, 25,000 folks across DLA. About 24,000 are civilian, and I, and I failed to mention that are about uh, 500 active and 600 reserve and guard personnel. So we have you know, less than 5% are military in uniform, um, you know, but they're a special part of our workforce as well because they come in for a couple of years, then they go back to the services, and they're even better demanding customers, <laughs> great partners, know exactly what DLA can do, um, which is so critically important for the services, logistics, capabilities. But anyway, the distribution centers and our disposition folks and a few other frontline workers, they couldn't go home to telework when COVID hit, right? You can't be managing storage and distribution from home. So we've got, you know, roughly... Seven, 8,000 folks that are in that category of frontline workers. Well, just because their work is, uh, you know, in many cases, physical labor or material movement, that does not mean that they don't need technological advances and, and we don't need to find efficiencies. We absolutely do. Because efficiencies are almost always directly correlated to better effectiveness to the mission. And so in the distribution centers, we are working on modernizing. We've used a voice pick 
technology and, uh, you know, always a little concerned that maybe the workforce won't embrace these new technological changes, but they have been all in. And they've even said, hey, we want more because they can see the advantage. They can see that they can get their work done more swiftly and more accurately. I mean, that's great. And so when you start getting that kind of feedback from um, – we call it the deck plates in the Navy. But anyway, from from those working on the floor, uh, that's critical feedback that, that we're, you know, invested in the right um, stuff. And, uh, and others, uh, areas on the distribution front, you know, um, we, you know, when, when Desert, I mentioned Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Storm in the early 90s, uh, you know, that was a massive increase in throughput of requirements through the distribution centers. And so how do you respond when you have this massive surge in demand uh, at, at the warehouses? Well, one way is to hire hundreds of people that now can move that throughput, that volume through the distribution centers and get them onto the transportation system and across to the warfighters. And now what we're doing is building the capability that we can surge as much as 160, 180 percent more than our day-to-day business in our um, in our highest volume distribution center, which is up the road in New Cumberland, Pennsylvania. And so, and we're doing that purely through technology, through temporary storage aids, through uh, RFID tagging, knowing exactly what is in that warehouse and when, so that if truck after truck after truck shows up, we can take it without having to hire 600, 800 people. And that's critical capability to be able to surge for whatever the reason, um, you know, if and when it happens. So that's just a couple of trends that we're working on and, and uh, will be critical to our mission. That's wonderful anecdotes. I mean, the really important stuff you're doing there. I was wondering, because you brought it up a couple of times, that the true north is the warfighter. So I was hoping you could share with us some of the strategies you employ to really understand the needs and requirements of the end user, which is the warfighter. Sure. So I I know I mentioned the regional commands Mm -hmm. that are uh, forward-facing a few of the geographic, critical geographic combatant commands and their components forward, but also uh, functional command in so much as uh, U.S. Special Operations Command. We also have um, a regional commander who faces both CENTCOM and SOCOM. Headquartered in Tampa, but his folks, as far as CENTCOM, are forward in the area of operation that CENTCOM oversees. But anyway, I mentioned those regional commands. That's actually evolved over time. So that's an org structure that we were not precisely. We had elements forward, but they were not under that umbrella of a regional commander. That regional commander him or her, you know, they're army colonels and one Navy captain. They are the eyes and ears inside those combatant commands and those components, what's changing, trying to uh, help inform their logistics uh, solutions that they're pondering or or even understanding what those challenges are so we can help uh, devise those tailored logistics solutions such as they might be. And, And the world is changing, whether it's in Africa and logistics needs down there, Clearly, the surge of forces inside Europe, you know, by being on the ground, that's why we pushed that additional forces, the rapid deployment team forward to supplement that leadership team that's already there because we knew it was going to go to a 24-7 operation 
locally. They needed the additional help from teammates. Uh, so that's one way, how we're organized facing key customers. We also have liaison officers, not just in the combatant commands, but in the services components, as well as on the joint staff. Again, to shorten that communication cycle uh, so that we're seeing things as they're changing, we're also able to help them form questions and solutions. It's, it's, uh, it's been working very well, and we even find ourselves with some of those federal interagency partners, such as FEMA, mm-hmm. that it's been very helpful. HHS during the pandemic, very helpful to have a liaison officer, again, to inform and shorten communication lines and solution lines. So that's been one way, a couple ways. And then also uh, we have partnership days which uh, we hold ourselves accountable through a performance-based agreement with services and some key partners. But then we also come together annually at the senior leader level. We kind of review our homework. How have we done over this last year? What projects are we working together? Just to continue the momentum to focusing on those key customer requirements because not all customers in DOD are alike. You know, the weapon systems they employ are different. The areas of operation, depending on what, you know, area you're talking about, they're all a little different. The Arctic is definitely different than Africa. Indo-PACOM is different, you know, the Indo-Pacific is different from Europe, et cetera. I'd like to talk about, because you've mentioned a couple of times, Admiral, um, your ability uh, to work with the whole of government. And what I mean by that is you mentioned FEMA, HHS. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, because I know in your, your strategic plan, you use the term whole of government. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit what you mean by that. But more importantly, how is it that you work with other non-DOD federal agencies? Are there challenges there? How does that work operationally? So I would say that uh, this is an area, if you consider our portfolio uh, supporting DOD. This has grown somewhat through the years. Mm -hmm. It's uh, not surprising that when crisis befalls our nation or or even the globe in the case of the pandemic, that that senior leaders are looking to where's where can we find a solution, a support system? It's not surprising that DLA would be at top of mind given given many of the requirements in responding to that crisis is something that you know are something you know that we already buy. So if we provide you know boots and uh, hoses and such to um, the Department of Defense personnel, then that's something that could could seamlessly be also provided to the Forest Service. Uh, If a hurricane befalls uh, Florida, Texas, et cetera, we already have capabilities, critical capabilities in expeditionary distribution teams. And so um, DLA, you've got a lot of what's needed in this crisis. How can you help? And and if if it's authorized and funded, then we absolutely will. We do not do it for free. We get everything we do is funded, so that's critically important. So, so making sure the paperwork for for that is moving through, and that we understand the requirements. And so, in DoD, I would say requirements, understanding the requirements, is much more mature, much more uh, seamless. In these whole government partners, it can be a little bit um, less clear. And so, with FEMA, we have evolved to a much more mature and productive and effective partnership in so much as uh, we now use what's called prescripted 
mission assignments. And so uh, I'm probably not telling you anything you don't already know. FEMA doesn't have thousands and thousands of people who, when a crisis hits, they can all sit down and say, okay, what do we need and from whom? And so what those prescripted mission assignments allow is for FEMA to quickly kind of go to the menu. Do they need from DLA, you know, generators or food or water or even people, communications capability, fuel, that distribution capability that I mentioned. And so and so they have absolutely come to us. Uh, now it's it's quicker. And I and I say, first of all, I'll take those reps and sets any day because it makes us stronger to respond to the warfighters' needs, for one. Um, for two, if we can move in hours and days instead of weeks and months, needless to say, that can save lives. And so so we're all in on providing our support when it makes sense to do so. And we so we have interagency agreements with those about 40 interagency partners, and that helps us kind of understand each other's processes and rely on those when, uh, when a crisis befalls us, and we can provide that help. And it pays off later on. But the, 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 how does that factor into right-sizing your inventory? Is that the modernization aspect? So, so inventory management is, is one of a critical portfolio items for us. Uh, boy, so we so we manage about five million some odd items. That does not mean five million items get ordered every mm-hmm. year. Even have regular and recurring. Some amount of them will never be ordered. Okay. But uh, but we have to be ready to buy them if they are ordered. So we have uh, different inventory management strategies. Some items have regular and recurring uh, demand. They're commercially available as well. So maybe we can go with a direct vendor delivery. Uh, we don't. We may or may not also have some stock of them ourselves. So some might come straight from the factory to the foxhole. Uh, if we can have a, a regular and recurring production from commercial industry on those, that might be the soundest way to have that number of items, about a million or so items, have some demand that come from the factory to the foxhole, so to speak. Uh, but we do manage and keep stock of about a million items ourselves inside those distribution okay. centers. Uh, and as you can well imagine, the... Uh, the inventory we manage, you know, commercial industry would never take on the portfolio we have. You know, there's so much erratic, rarely demanded, then all of a sudden one blip, you know, this has never been ordered before. Nobody's making it anymore. How are we going to get after this? Uh, you know, they'd be going after the profit. Uh, in our case, that's that's not the goal. And so, uh, so we have to have multiple inventory management uh, options. One is to stock it. One is to have it straight from the vendor. Uh, another is to um, try to capitalize on new uh, forecasting or alternative to forecasting. And and that is an area where we've been uh, working with the OSD team uh, under uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Sustainment, where they're encouraging more of the components to adopt what are called alternatives to forecasting methodologies. And and the reason why is there there is a pony in the pile, as they say. If you can uh, evolve more of your inventory, and we are a leader on that front, but if you can evolve more of your inventory into those alternatives to forecasting, what you'll see is an improved material availability for those times when they are needed. You'll see um, 
that it energizes industry because they're getting a more steady demand profile, not this like rare, erratic, uncertain on quantities, uh, you know, profile. And then it also optimizes your inventory levels. And so we've seen that ourselves, you know, we're, we're a leader, leader across DOD in using these alternatives to forecasting. So it is driving down or optimizing inventory levels. It's improving material availability, and it's also uh, given a better demand signal from the industry. What are some of the critical risks facing the global supply chain? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Vice Admiral Michelle Skubik, Director of the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA. I want to transition a little bit outside and talk about the supply chain. And given your background and now your, your leadership role, I'd be interested in getting your a sense of some of the risks that the global and arguably interdependent supply chain um, is, is encountering. What is DLA doing to anticipate it? How does visibility and security being handled? What could you say for that? So so we have a couple of initiatives on this front. Uh, you know, first of all, so much of the digital business transformation is, a, is about not only um, the cybersecurity and the volume throughputs and reducing cost, but it's also about um, – capturing, recording, and using data to better inform our decisions, uh, you know, and better inform um, our risk assessments. Uh, And so, you know, our business is fraught with risk. The people we support work in a risk environment. And so we need to see how we can best manage risk. And, uh, And the ecosystem of the vendors we work with the customers in different operating areas, et cetera, you know, demands that we need to have a better uh, view of both market intelligence and what the trends are across our supply chains, what those risks are vis-a-vis that, that supply chain uh, framework. And, uh, and we are seeing areas, you know, this pandemic's been tough on several economic sectors out there. Uh, for us, one that has... Um, you know, certainly taken some hits is the clothing and textiles in industry. And, uh, you know, it has 
a high volume of small businesses uh, where margins are often tight. And so we're, we're trying to better understand and also shape our decisions on how we would interact with you know, that industry, for example, are, are critical suppliers on that front. And so, you know, it's kind of understanding the full supply chain risk management framework. You know, what are the risks? How can we influence uh, shoring up those risks? Or who do we have to work with stakeholders-wise, whether it's different, you know, OSD policy, different acquisition regulation policy, different legislation, you know, there's sometimes different ways to get after uh, shoring up risks. Um, but but first and foremost, we need to understand kind of what we're seeing through our data picture, but also what are we seeing uh, through that market intelligence framework as well. And, uh, you know, all of us have experienced inflation uh, impacts personally, and we're also seeing some of that on the uh, vendor uh, front. And for us, the impacts of that have largely been hedged somewhat by the fact that we have long-term contracts with fixed pricing. Some of our items aren't ordered every year. And uh, and so when they come up on renewal or a new requirement, maybe that's when we'll see a little bit more. We've kind of seen a 7 to 10 percent range of inflation across our portfolio. And and you and I have watched inflation, you know, if we asked, you know, a year and a half ago, what's inflation going to look like in 2024, you and I might have said, eh, 2 to 3%. If you asked us six months ago, we might have said 15%. <laughs> I mean, it, would, it could have been a totally different number. Point, yeah. And now even that might be a different answer than six months Absolutely. ago. And so... Um, so I'm not sure what that's going to look like going forward. We're always very focused on our small business cadre. I mean, they're critical to our our business and, and our mission. And uh, out of about 9,000-plus suppliers, 80% of them are small businesses. Uh, yeah, it's 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 significant, uh, but we have seen that number drop. And and so, you know, is that because of mergers and acquisitions? Is that because COVID's got people retiring, you know, um, owner-operated businesses, they decided to retire and go fishing? You know, we don't know the exact why, but what we want to make sure is that we're not part of the reason, that we're not the obstacle to them. And so we have small business leads at each of our buying commands to make sure a small business has a place, an entry point to reach in, learn more about if they're having a problem with anything, kind of gives them a phone a friend uh, that faces small business. How critically important it is for something like DLA with its reach and its mission, how critical are partnerships and collaboration to leveraging them to actually achieve your mission outcomes? So this goes a little bit back to the magic of DLA, right? And that's uh, that people piece. So the people are the ones who are, no matter what level inside DLA, that's where relationships are built and strengthened and, and how you treat each other, right? Dignity and respect. You may not agree with me, but let's let's work together. And so uh, that includes our, our facing to industry, critical partners. Obviously, our customers are critical partners. They have logistics service organizations that we have to be just amazing teammates building solutions together. But on the industry side of the house, um, and that's part of our uh, strategic plan, but we want to be very thoughtful and deliberate about how we face, communicate with, invite feedback from industry. And, and we, we 
codified some of those intentions, most of those intentions in our industry engagement plan. Uh, and we also have been doing, we just uh, finished wrapping up the third supplier survey in a row, trying again to solicit that feedback. Um, you know, what do we not know about the difficulty of doing business with DLA? And, and then on top of that, uh, you're probably not surprised that we get more invites to symposiums and conferences and industry days, et cetera, from services and, uh, and key industry associations and other organizations uh, than there are days in the, in the <laughs> year. So, uh, so we have a deliberate view of what those are, which ones are most relevant to DLA and our mission set. And then and we, we do a divide and conquer across leaders. Different leaders have different portfolios. If there's an aviation conference, of course, DLA Aviation, uh, one of their leaders or maybe more might be the ones that go. I do try to get to uh, some of the the larger, most impactful symposiums that the services run, Modern Day Marine, Mm -hmm. Sea Airspace, uh, and then NDTA, NDIA, et cetera. Uh, You know, those are are big events. And then if I do go, you know, there's no way I can talk to 9,000 suppliers. None of us can. But we try to get um, a representation of a couple of the large OEMs Mm -hmm. as well as a couple of the key suppliers that have booths at any given event. And and we try to change it out. And and you get – because you get different perspectives from those uh, engagements. Um, I remember when I went to the NDTA uh, symposium a couple of years back. Uh, That was when – we were all trying to figure out how to deal with masking and testing and vaccination requirements. And so just kind of hearing uh, how these organizations that provide critical support to the Department of Defense, how they were adapting or not being able to, et cetera, that's critical feedback for all of us. And if you're willing to listen and then better yet willing to talk about is there a way to overcome these challenges together? even better. You know, one more question around, you mentioned people being integral to your effort. And I was wondering, what are you doing around the future of work? So, uh, so I think every organization seems to have some future of work um, plan uh, evolving. Uh, Yeah. It does go back a little bit to the magic of DLA. I hate to say so people, at least it's consistent. I like that. that. Not not exactly by intent, but there are, there are themes. And one of them is, Thank goodness that leaders before us and the team uh, before mid-March of 2020, Mm -hmm. um, we already, all of those individuals that don't have to be frontline workers that were telework eligible um, were already in a position. They may not have had the tools exactly because not all of them were teleworking, but but, uh, they were identified. So, okay, I'm somebody who can telework. Hey, I haven't gotten a laptop yet. As soon as that happened, our um, CIO, chief information officer, and his team worked to get those tools to those who didn't already have them. We essentially did not miss a beat because we were already so telework ready, telework experienced, telework uh, receptive, candidly. And so uh, that was critically important to keep that scale that I mentioned continuing to flow. And when I came into DLA, I said, you know, we're going we're gonna to come back to the office at some point. But I will tell you, this is a skill set that every single person who is telework eligible should never lose. The ability to revert to the home office 
or or a telework site to be able to continue to do your critical mission because threats could be mother nature could be man made could be just you know a vocalized threat that isn't real but we still need you to do your job. So it's it's a skill set, teleworking effectively. Yeah. I, I do it myself at least every couple of weeks yeah. just to make sure, you know, I'm still able to dial in, nothing's gone, tripped, you know, tripped off. Uh, I think that's a critical capability. And that's a bit of a shift in mindset because there are some who never teleworked before. There's some supervisors who didn't love it. Uh, so now we've got to be good at the new hybrid situation. And so we have what we call a theme, which is presence with a purpose. And so if you are in the office, you know, it's it's to work on on that camaraderie, on training, you know, the culture piece, on training. We have intern programs. It's hard to be an intern when you don't get any (laughs) face-to-face, some feedback, some of that kind of organic that Mm -hmm. happens when you're in the same office and when you walk by the water cooler and when you, you know, you hear, you just learn a little bit more about each other and it cements that culture. And and DLA's culture is, has got to be one of the strongest I've ever seen. And, uh, and so my concern for culture is less about the larger organization, but more about those new entrants to the organization. I I imagine we have people who, for a couple of years, never saw their teammates in person, other than maybe picking up a laptop. And that's not necessarily somebody you're going to work with. It's an IT folk who's helping you out. Um, And so I want to make sure that we don't end up incurring risks on that front, risks to the culture, risks to training. Uh, You know, we want to stay strong in culture. We want to stay strong in training. We have had such a good intern program, leader development program, rotational assignments, different education and training opportunities that – that we got to kind of look at all of that going forward of of finding the best of both worlds, effectiveness outside the office and effectiveness inside the office. I really like the idea of it being a skill set. I've never really heard it presented that way, so it's a wonderful way to put it. I don't know, just a couple of more questions and then we'll we'll leave it. But um, I was wondering, are there any other key accomplishments you'd like to share? But more importantly, what does the future hold for DLA? So again, it's going to be more of that capitalizing on emerging technology, uh, reforming our business processes and our systems. Uh, you know, I'll brag just a smidge in so much as, you know, robotic process automation, RPAs, right? You know, um, RPAs don't get a ho- whole lot of headlines. It's AI and ML, which we're, we're forging into that future as well. But uh, I was told, maybe we still do, we had the most number of RPAs uh, in use. And, and so I need Experts, uh, you know, like I have a CDAO, mm-hmm. uh, chief data analytics officer, and an and expanding team on that front. That's a skill set we need to continue to hone. Data analytics, data harvesting, decision based on, uh, you know, what the data is telling us. And so, but on top of that, I also need the workforce to embrace new technology, to learn some of those skill sets themselves. And so RPAs are an example where we're taking the folks that wrestle with the problems every day and we're making citizen developers out of them. And it's growing legs. They're like, hey, I can do an RPA for that. And I think, you know, the magic will be when the RPA recommends other RPAs, <laughs> which you might call that machine learning, you know, uh, we'll see. But you know, I, I use that just as an example that we really are Leaning forward, we are a learning organization. Love to innovate because the innovation 
is all about that North Star, not just because we love to innovate. You know, we, we see, again, the advantage to getting after reform and modernization right now. And, and we have efforts on, you know, additive manufacturing with the services. You know, that's, that's a burgeoning area um, and a critical area because we could all see. I mentioned those millions of items we manage, some of which don't get ordered except maybe once every 10 years. Well, suppliers aren't going to stay in business to make one thing once in 10 years. So you might find yourselves having to look at an additive manufacturing solution. You may be on the battlefield where you can't wait for the transportation pipeline to get something remotely to you. You may need it on the battlefield. For any number of reasons, additive manufacturing presents a solution base. And so if we're going to get after that, we also need to get after the the tech data mm-hmm. on that, um, on the on the safety pieces of that. So a, a safety of flight item. How does it go through the paces of being asserted to be, you know, designed right and safe enough to be installed if it's additively manufactured? I mean, we have a lot of work, great work yeah. to do on that front. Uh, and and you've seen the articles. I mean, they're talking about building, you know, infrastructures out of added. You know, there's that's a whole opportunity area. I think that'll be exciting. I mentioned that we moved into the cloud, the data visualization piece. So having moved into the cloud allowed us when the uh, OSD comptroller who wanted to get a good amount of our data into Advana, which is a DOD um, repository and has event visualization tools in it, when they asked for terabytes of data, lots of data. It would have taken us much longer and many uh, person hours, so to speak, to get done. But we were able to do that in days, move that kind of data in days because we were in the cloud. And uh, and just that critical enabler, you know, so we, we, we were able to see just in one request how that was one great advantage. So... There's so much. There's so much to talk about with DLA. <laughs> it's great, and you, it's been wonderful. I, I want to ask you one last question. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service or military service? <laughs> well, well, don't be like me and wait. Uh, but again, that that timing just worked, proved to be fortuitous for me. But uh, but but I would say, uh, you know, if you choose to. Um, Dedicate your talents in service to our nation uh, in, in any capacity. Uh, first of all, you will earn your pay every day, but it will absolutely be worth your while. And, uh, and you, will, you will walk away better for it in skills, in relationships, you know, in, um, in just uh, knowing that you made a difference every day. Well, I want to thank you for coming in today, Admiral. But more importantly, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Vice Admiral Michelle Skubik, Director of the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. 
urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.